Bibles to the book of Revelation. This is last week we began our study and the series on the book of Revelation. And we saw, we kind of unpacked the main thing to see in Revelation is it's not meant to confuse us. It's meant to be a disclosure. That's what the word revelation means. It means a disclosure or unveiling. So revelation is not meant to be confusing or to be um, veiled. It's actually meant to make things clear for us. And sometimes for us as modern day readers, we can get a little bogged down with some of the imagery there because we're not used to reading things like prophetic literature that make pictures for us and communicate to us with symbols. And so sometimes Revelation can seem unclear, but God desires to be clear for us. And he desires to reveal all that Jesus is. And that's what we looked at last week. And we really saw that if you were going to sum up the main idea of the entire book of Revelation, it would be that, that Jesus is the triumphant king. That's who he is. Jesus is the triumphant king who has conquered. He is ruling and he forever will reign. That's Jesus is the triumphant king. Let that kind of be your filter as you're reading throughout the book. Jesus is the triumphant king. He has conquered because he has. Amen? And he is ruling, and that's good news for us, and he forever will reign. And that's, that's really a summary, if you will, of the thread that goes throughout the book of Revelation. So turn your Bible to Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. We'll be continuing on in John's opening to the letter where he is setting things up and explaining what this letter is meant to do for us. So let's look and see God's Word. And as you turn to God's Word, once you have, if you go ahead and stand, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy, inspired Word. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. This is God's Word. Let's be seated and let's pray. Father, thank you for giving this revelation of Jesus to John. God, thank you for giving this revelation of Jesus to John to give to us that we might receive grace and peace from you. God, so often we are unaware of the grace we have in you. And Lord, as a result, so often we lack peace in this world. God, I pray that this morning we would behold you. We would see who you are. We would would know who we are in you. And we would look forward to your return. 
And God, I pray that we would experience your grace and your peace as a result. Holy Spirit, this is only possible through you, so we ask you to come to illuminate our hearts and minds to, so that we might see you, we might behold you, we might respond to you. Lord, help us be attentive to your word. Lord, enable me to preach your words. We need you. Thank you, Lord, that you promise your spirit. Lord, it's confident in these things that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember sometime around the mid-80s or so that there was this thing called a magic eye. It was this 3D stereoscopic posters that you would look at, and you would see different images, and, and it would look really confusing on the surface. Anybody, anybody remember the magic eye thing? It started in the mid-80s, and then it really took off in the 90s, and it was like everywhere. Did anybody actually have a magic eye poster? All right, cool. You were the cool ones then, all right, yeah. Um, I, I remember going to the mall and looking at these magic eye posters all up on the Apple Blossom Mall in Winchester and, and looking at all of these posters and, and we would have a contest between me, my friends, my family, whoever could see it first. And when you saw it first, when you kind of looked past the picture and you saw what was really there, you would like, I, I, see, I see a duck and he's swimming or whatever the duck was doing and... You would, you would shout it out so that you could prove that you weren't making it up, that you really saw it. So um, I've actually got a couple of magic eyes for you this, this morning. This, I, I made these. You can go up and make them yourself now, which is really cool. Um, anybody see that? Anybody see what's on there? You got to kind of squint your eyes, don't you? You, gotta, you kind of have to focus past what you see that's right in front of you, and you have to look past to see what's really there. Oh, I've got a, a second one happening. I'll, I'll have them up later for you for, to, to see this second one actually is a cross. I don't know if you can see that. Anybody see a cross there? Or imagine you see a cross? <laughs> Excellent. It's kind of hard to see at first. Well, go ahead and one, one last one. One last one. Okay, another, a third one. I'm not going to give away what they say. I'll wait till the end and then I'll, I'll give away then at, after the service is over. Well, in order to see these magic eyes, you kind of have to, you have to look properly. You have to, you have to look beyond what you see right in front of you. You can't focus on the details up front. You have to look past that and see what's there. And then all of a sudden, out pops this 3D imagery. And now you can go ahead and do away with that. Otherwise, people will stare at that all day long trying to figure out, I can't see it. And you kind of have to, you kind of have to kind of stare through it and kind of almost cross your eyes and kind of look past it. And then all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, I see it. Um, sometimes life is a little like that. We, we, it looks jumbled. All the details of life, it's really busy, it's noisy, it looks jumbled, and we can have a hard time seeing the reality of what's there. And so the Apostle John, and that's who I believe is writing this book to the church, the Apostle John, he is writing because he wants to reveal what's true. He wants to reveal what's true about life, what's true about God, what's true about us, what's, what's true about Jesus and his return. And so that's what we see really in this passage is that is the Apostle John, he's revealing something. He's really what's really there, but you have to see it just right. You have to look. You have to see clearly and not get distracted by all the details of life because if you're like me, sometimes you get busy. Anybody here feel busy at times? You can raise your hand. It's okay. Anybody here forget to read the Bible in the morning because you have so many things going on in your head? It's okay. You can, you can actually admit that as a Christian. You're not saved by whether you read your Bible or not. So 
Sometimes you wake up and your thoughts are just running, right? And you think of all the things you have to do in the day. You think of all the problems, all the issues. If you have kids, you're thinking about them, what you have to do with them, for them, to get them ready. And then, you know, a, a myriad of things happen and you can, you can lose sight, lose track of reality. And what happens when that occurs, at least for me, is sometimes I, I'm, I'm not aware of and I'm not receiving actively God's grace. And I'm not aware of his peace, and I don't receive his peace because I'm so focused on the details, the problems, the trials. Maybe you're sick. Maybe there's suffering. Maybe you've got pain in your shoulder or something. It's distracting. It feels all-encompassing. It's all you can see. And so John says, I want you to see something here. I want you to receive grace and peace. And, and, and he explains how grace and peace come. Grace and peace. And really, this is the, the main idea of this passage that I want us to see this morning. I believe God would have us see this morning is that we receive grace and peace from seeing God, who God is, from truly seeing God. We receive grace and peace from seeing God, from, from seeing who we are in him. And then looking for his return. You have, to, you have to look behind the details of this everyday life. You have to look above. You have, to, you have to look past all the problems, the worries, the suffering, the trials, the opposition. Anybody here ever have things like that? Trials, suffering? Raise your hand if you this thing. Trials, suffering, opposition, difficulties. They can feel like they, all you can see. And those details get blurry. And so you need to look up and see God and who he is. And receive his grace and peace by seeing who God is. By by seeing who we are in him, and then by looking, anticipating, knowing he's going to return. And that's what John wants us to see. God desires to give us grace and peace. Grace and peace come from seeing God rightly to begin with. That's how they come, from seeing God rightly to begin with. But but first, a little background. We're gonna, we, we started with some background of the letter. And as we go through the letter, we encounter different things, things that are unusual to us or things we need to draw attention to. We will continue to give background on the book as we go. So don't worry. We're not giving all the background at once, but we're giving it in pieces. So just a little background on this. God gave this book of the revelation of Jesus, of, of all that Jesus has and all that Jesus is. He gave this revelation to an angel, and he gave it to John, and he gave it for our good. Now, who is this John here? I believe it was the Apostle John who wrote the letter, and there's some good reasons to believe that. The churches in the area where, where John, the Apostle, had lived, probably in Ephesus right before being exiled, they, they probably would not have received a, 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 an apostolic letter like this, a letter with authority, unless they knew it was from the Apostle. In, in addition to that, the people in his day attested to the fact that he wrote the letter. The earliest attestations were that it was no one else besides John the Apostle. It was people like Irenaeus, who was born around 100 AD. He was discipled by Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of John. Justin Martyr, born a couple years after John's death. Clement of Rome. All of these early people who lived in and around and slightly after John's times all would have said, yeah, this is the Apostle John. Now, why is that important? Because... It has apostolic authority. Now, the reality is, whether or not the Apostle John wrote this, we know that this is a book that speaks with the authority of God. This is unique. It is Scripture. And John likely wrote this somewhere between 68 AD and 90 AD. It was a period when the church 
was experiencing opposition and persecution. The Roman government had, had figured out that the church, they, they're not the Jewish religion. The Jewish religion kind of got a hall pass. They kind of got grandfathered in, so the Roman government put up with them. But Christianity was seen, now this is a, a different sect. This is a Jewish sect. They're different than Judaism. And so they began experiencing persecution, not widespread, but different places. By 90 AD or so, it became widespread under Domitian. But during this time, what would happen is people, Christians started to stand out and look different from the culture around them. They seemed odd because they lived differently. They seemed unusual because they talked about this Jesus who was their Lord and King, not the emperor as king. They were not living for themselves, but they were living for their king who they couldn't see, who wasn't here, who they kept talking about was coming back. And they, they talked about eating his body and drinking his blood. And so Christians were thought of as weird, superstitious. Christians were kind of thought of as odd. They stood out. They become unusual. And then the culture around them said, you know what? If you're going to do business with us, you need to accept how we do business. And you need to worship the same gods we worship. And when Christians said, no, we only worship Jesus, they began to experience opposition, sometimes in the form of, of people putting them out of their friendships, out of their relationships, denying business to them. I mean, if it got really bad, then they would not only be persecuted, but they could be put to death. And actually, at the time of this letter, already a few people had been put to death, and Antipas will be mentioned in the next chapter. And so John is writing to people who are experiencing temptations and trials and persecutions all around them. People who are tempted to either blend in because it's easier. You ever, you ever tempted to blend in because it's easier? Just not say anything, keep your head down. I don't want people to know I'm a Christian because then I don't want to draw attention to myself because they'll think I'm a weirdo. They'll think I'm a freak. Or people were tempted to leave the faith or give up or despair when they experience opposition or feel like they were all alone. And so John is writing to real churches. And he, he, at the very beginning, tells us what churches he's writing to. These are not fictitious churches. These are not hypothetical churches. And next week, we'll see the, the exact seven churches and where they are in the area that is Turkey today. But he's writing to seven very real churches. And he's writing to these churches because they're facing real issues. And he's addressing real problems. And, and this message is not meant to be hypothetical. It's meant to actually help them in their daily Christian walk as they face opposition, as they face trials, as they face temptations, as they face persecution. And they face all kinds of temptations that we can relate to today. And, and you're going to notice that there are seven churches. It wasn't all the churches that existed in that area. But, but John is is really highlights different numbers throughout the book, and he uses numbers differently, which is a little unusual for us today. When we use numbers, they actually mean just numbers, but um, John, numbers mean that, but they could mean far more. And so for John, the number seven often is symbolic. These are real churches. There were seven real churches, but there weren't only seven churches. So why did he pick seven? Well, it's probably because that number seven represents fullness or completion. Back when, when God created everything... He created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And, and so seven from the very beginning of creation has, has represented perfection or completion. And so John wasn't just writing to these churches in that day, but he was writing to the church, to the perfect church, to the complete church, to all churches in all times. Leviticus, they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice seven times over the altar, and they literally sprinkled it seven times. But why they did that was to represent the, 
the completion of the sacrifice as well. God said he'd punish Israel seven times if they didn't repent. It was meant to indicate how complete his punishment would be. And so when you see the number seven here in the book of Revelation, there's going to be a lot of numbers, by the way, throughout the book of Revelation. So one of the keys to understanding Revelation is saying, okay, these numbers, they, they mean real things, but they're also symbolized things as well. And that's how John uses numbers in the book of Revelation. You'll see lots of sevens. In fact, you'll see sevens in seven lampstands in the next couple chapters. You'll see the seven spirits of God representing the Holy Spirit, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. You're going to see that repeat all throughout the book. All are meant to show that those things that are complete, complete judgment. So John's writing the seven real churches, but the representative of all churches, and he wasn't writing on his own behalf. He's writing here, and if you look down your Bibles, it's really clear, he's writing on behalf of God, and he's writing from God to the churches. And he's want to communicate things to the churches in this prophetic letter and what he wants the churches to receive from this letter, from this revelation of Jesus, from seeing that, that Jesus is this triumphant king who has conquered, who is ruling, who will forever reign. He wants us to receive God's grace and peace from seeing Jesus and seeing God in this letter. And the truth he reveals, the first truth we're going to look at is that we receive grace and peace from seeing God. We receive grace and peace from seeing God. And he lists God here, the triune God. It's God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. But he uses some different terminology, terminology we may not be used to. And and you're going to see here that grace to you and peace, where does that come from? From him. And, And what does it say of God? It says, from him who is from him who was. And you might expect it to say, and, and, and him who will be, right? But he doesn't say it. He says, from him who is, from him who was, and from whom who is to come. Meaning he has not just left us alone. He's not distant. He is to come. God is the one who is and who was and is to come. Now, if I greeted people like that, it would be a little awkward. If I said, you know, hey, greetings from my wife Julie, who is and who was and who is to come. It would seem a little strange, or at least it should seem a little strange. It's not an everyday kind of greeting. This is the kind of language John is elevating this language because he wants us to hear something. He wants us to see that this is the great I am, he who is. And so he uses unusual language. It's the he who is, it's the same he who always was. And not only that, the he who is, who always was, is the he who is to come. He's eternal. We need to see that that this eternal God holds all things. Not only that, look in verse 8, if you will, kind of repetition of the same idea. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come. He says it a second time. The Almighty. God is declaring through John who he is, and that is how we receive grace and peace. If you understand who God is, that he is the eternal God who always has been, who currently is, and who will come. If you understand that he's the first, he's the last. Now, when it says alpha and omega, it's using the Greek alphabet. Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the end. And what he's saying is not that God's an alphabet. It's speaking metaphorically here. 
Of course, God's not a big A and a big omega, but, but God is the beginning of all things, and he's the end of all things. And like the alphabet, he comprises everything, and he's over everything in the middle. If you look at your situations, your trials, your circumstances, your suffering, your physical difficulties, whatever it might be, your finances, your job experience, the, the people in your life who are causing you difficulty, and you just see those things, you'll lack peace. But if you understand who God is, that he's over all things, that he is the almighty, he's the beginning and he's the end, you can receive his grace and say, okay, God, I can trust you. And you can receive peace knowing that you're secure in the almighty God. That's how we receive grace and peace in our time of need. God knows all things. He's over all things. He's ordained and orchestrated all of history. He continues to be over all things. Not just now. He always has been and he always will be. That's what John means to communicate. That's what John is communicating to us. That's what God is giving to us. It's critical to get that point if you're a follower of Jesus. There is nothing over which God is not sovereign. There's nothing in your life that's too big for God. There's nothing in your life that... God is unconcerned about, that God doesn't care about. There's nothing in your life that God is not able to make you able to bear. Do you understand what I'm saying there? No trials too big. No suffering catches him off guard. He's able to ultimately hold and keep secure his church. He can be trusted. He knows all things. That's what we need to see to receive God's grace, to receive his peace. We need to see who God is. Not only that, we see we see grace and peace that come to us, not just from God, but from the Holy Spirit as well. And, and he gives this threefold repetition of how grace and peace come. And by the way, grace and, and peace only come from God. And so he says, grace and peace come from he who was, who is, and he who is to come. And from the seven spirits. And you think, wait a minute, what? That's some weird language. But we know that it says, and from Jesus. Now in the Bible, grace and peace only come from God. And so he's also listing here God the Father, we know that, him who is and was and is to come. He's listing Jesus, and he says the seven spirits, what in the world? Now, remember how John uses numbers in the book of Revelation. And, and so what we see here is that he's talking about the perfection or the completion. The full manner of the Spirit is how grace and peace come. It says from the seven spirits are before his throne. Some have thought that John literally meant there were seven persons of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not what he's saying here. What he's communicating is the Holy Spirit's perfect in every way. And it's, it's most likely a reference to earlier literature. And it's something else important to notice is how John uses numbers, but also how John uses the Old Testament. Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. There's at least, at least, at least 250 um, illustrations or allusions back to the Old Testament, at least 250 minimum in the book of Revelation. And so in here, he's, he's most likely looking back to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11 too, Isaiah in, in the Septuagint, he talks about how the spirit of the Lord, it says, shall rest upon him. It says the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And, and so what is Isaiah showing us? He's showing us the sevenfold or the the, the seven magnified attributes of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom, and He's the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. It's also likely a reference to Zechariah 4.2, where 
the vision is shown to the prophet by an angel. He wrote, and he said to me, what do you see? And he said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, the seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And later the angel of God explains how he accomplishes that work. And he says in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord, desirable, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's by means of the perfect spirit of God that God will destroy all the works of darkness in the world. The spirit is before the throne and in his fullness, and he is the emissary of God. And he uses this kind of symbolic language in Revelation 4, 5. He says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, listen, it says, we're burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven spirits are really the sevenfold spirit of God, and they carry out, the Holy Spirit carries out God's commands as his emissary here. Not only do grace and peace come from seeing God the Father, but they come from seeing the Spirit who's perfectly work as God's emissary. And that would be an encouragement to the churches to know that on each of their lampstands, the Holy Spirit was actively at work in each of the churches. That's what John's showing. But not only that, in verse 5 it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So grace and peace come from God the Father, God the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And there's three realities that, that John tells us about Jesus. Look down your Bibles. He calls them three things. He says, Jesus is the faithful witness. He's also the firstborn from the dead. And then he's the ruler of the kings on earth. We receive grace and peace from knowing that who God is, that he's over all things, that the Holy Spirit, he's active in all the churches, and that Jesus... He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the ruler over all kings. There's a quote from G.K. Beale. He says, this threefold description is meant to encourage believers who are about to enter severe persecution since they can have confidence that Christ has suffered the same thing and overcome it, and that they, therefore, will be empowered to do likewise. You see, the witness, the testimony about Jesus, about the Father, is true. We can trust all that Jesus said. His witness is true. He's the ultimate King David. He's the true anointed one. And Psalm speaks of this, and his descendants will reign forever. And in Psalm 89, which I think John is probably referencing here, he says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the king of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. If you go down to verse 36 in Psalm 89, it says, His offspring shall endure forever. His throne is long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the ruler of all kings. And his kingdom, his throne will endure forever. And I love that it says his offspring shall endure forever. His throne, his offspring endure forever. The the witness of Christ was faithful. And he pointed He pointed the way of how we can be faithful as we trust in the Father. 
Jesus set not only example, but he was our complete faithful witness. He, he carried out God's will completely and faithfully in every way. Not only that, he's the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? Is he just the first one to be born after, after death? Well, what it means is that as the firstborn, the firstborn in the Jewish culture was the one to whom the inheritance would be given. The firstborn was in control of the inheritance, and he would meet that out. And so when he says, Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, it has a lot of meaning there. He's the firstborn. He is the heir who receives the inheritance and gives the inheritance to all the other children. And by the fact that he's the firstborn from the dead, what it means is that he's conquered death. And he's not the only born from the dead. He's the firstborn. Meaning that we can be sure that because he was raised from the dead, that he was the firstborn from the dead, we too, all of us who are in him, will be raised from the dead as well. Even if the people in the churches are martyred, Jesus is their guarantee that he will forever be alive with him after earthly death. And this testimony of Jesus gives hopes to all the people in the church who are suffering because he is the ruler of all kings. You know, you ever get freaked out when you look at the world around you? You ever get wigged out when you think, oh my goodness, it does not seem to be getting better. Things seem to be getting worse and worse and, and, and maybe you had hopes in a, in a different political party or maybe you had hopes in a leader or maybe you had hopes in someone else and you realize that no, no, our only hope really is God who is above all and that he actually rules all the kings on the earth. That's where our ultimate hope is. Now, we pray for leaders. We pray for our current leader. We pray for the administration. We pray for all those in power. I encourage you to do that. But you can only do that knowing that he is the king who rules over all kings. That brings you grace and peace. He rules over all the kings of the earth. And that day, it might have looked like the Roman emperor reigned supreme. They might have thought these little kings that were set up in all of these little cities everywhere, these little rulers, they might have felt like they were all powerful in their different cities and they kind of reigned supreme. The Christians there might have been afraid of opposition and persecution. They might have been afraid that this emperor, he seems to be all powerful and wield all might. He's able to do all things. And, and to that, John, or rather God speaks through John to the church and says, no. Jesus is the ruler of all kings on earth. All kings on earth, whether physically, physical kings, or if you think about the other language that we'll see later on in Revelation, the, the prince of the power of the air, those, those demonic forces behind earthly kings, Jesus is the ruler over all kings on earth. Every and all king. You don't have to be afraid of any demonic power. You don't have to be afraid of the devil. You don't have to be afraid of any earthly power. Why? Oh, you can have peace knowing he's the ruler over all kings. He's the ruler. And he pulls back the veil on who Jesus really is. He says, you know, it might have appeared to some as if when Jesus was crucified that somehow the Roman government won. But what you need to see is that that inscription over his cross, it is true. He is the king over all. It's really the fulfillment of Psalm 2. I don't, have this, I don't have this scripture for you on the overheads, but if you'll just listen while I read it. Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits 
in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in Christ, knowing that he is the king over all kings. You don't have to fear your boss. You don't have to fear whoever that is in the position of authority over you at school, at work, in your, in your relationships. You don't need to wonder and worry, what will happen here? Is God able to keep me, sustain me, protect me? Is God able to bring about his purposes? Not only is God the Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the end, but Jesus is the ruler over all kings. And you receive his grace and peace as you begin to look beyond what you see and see what's really true. It's assuring to us in this realm that we live in, we're all under some kind of earthly ruler. And if you think about that long, it could be frightening because earthly rulers are corrupt, right? They misuse and abuse power. And if we put our ultimate trust in the rulers of this world or any person of authority, no matter where that person may meet, whether in business, and government, a church, I don't want you putting your trust ultimately in me either. I want you putting your trust in Jesus. And we can be sure this gives us grace and peace. You know, that the Roman emperor would have wielded a very real and terrible power. Christians would have been seen as threats to power and stability. The Romans would put Christians to death if they didn't swear fealty to the emperor. People could be put in jail or punished or banished or killed if they were seen as threatening the peace in their individual cities. They would have needed to know that Jesus is the ruler over all kings. They would have even known to know that God really is in control. He is he who is, he who was, and he who is to come. But John doesn't stop with the assurance of knowing that we'll be resurrected like Jesus. He's ultimately the ruler of all the kings on the earth. He loves us and he sets us free. Think of this as like heaven's gift package to you, right? I love when Amazon truck comes to my house. Anybody loves that experience? You're waiting for this package to show up and you come and you're like, ooh, and you open it up. And so like we dole them out to each of the kids and let different kids open up the packages because there's such like treats to open up. I want you to see this letter of Revelation like that. And so this is a special delivery this morning of, a, of heaven's gift package to you, of seeing God for who he is, seeing Jesus, the treasure is. And here's a, here's a special gift package. I, I love when I get those packages on my porch, when I hear the little notification that somebody's at the front door, I go down there. But here's the great news. This shelf life of grace and peace, they, they don't expire. This is a grace and peace that's available to the church for all times. And it never expires. It's always available. It's always fresh. All you got to do is look past what you see. Look to what's really true. Look to see who God really is. He's the one who is, who was, 
I mean, who is to come? And who was and who is to come? He's the one who is perfectly at work by his spirit in all the churches. He's the one who is Jesus, who is reigning and ruling actively. And not only that, here's this, here's this wonderful postmark package, is postmarked right from God. And I love how John responds. Look, look down your Bibles. In the middle of this passage about who God is, Look down at verse 5. It's like he bursts out into song. He, that's the only appropriate response is worship. He gets it. And he says, oh, 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 God, this is, this is praise here. And so his heart swells in fullness and he explodes kind of in joyful doxology and he starts to praise Jesus. It's a moment that's too good to not say thank you for. It says... To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to God. And Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those aren't just useless words, but they're words of praise. And that's an appropriate response when we look and see who God really is. And that's a means of grace and gives us peace. But not only do we receive grace and peace from seeing who God is, but we can see here we receive grace and peace from seeing who we are in him. We receive grace and peace from seeing who we are in him. That's the second point this morning. Grace and peace are seen from seeing who we are in him. It says, to him who loves us. Think about it for a second. If Jesus didn't love us and we knew that he is ruler over all the kings of the earth and that he's over all things in all time, but he hated us, that would be frightening. It'd be terrifying news. It would mean that punishment would go on forever if he hated us. It would mean that whatever suffering or torture you experienced would only be the beginning. But John says, no, no, you need to get something here. You need to see that it's to him who loves us. Our ruler loves us. He's not like the Roman emperor. He showed his love in coming into the world, becoming a man, patiently resisting all temptation. Enduring all suffering for us. He showed his love by dying for us. And now he loves us by caring for us actively. But if you don't see that, it will affect how you live. So imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that you were living in this day and age and you were a pauper and you were imprisoned. And maybe you got let out on furlough, but how you interacted with everyone be shaped by the identity that you had by knowing that you were a pauper who's imprisoned and you were only out on furlough for a little bit of time, so you better be on good behavior. It would shape how you interacted with people. It would, it would shape what you did and it would influence your actions. But then imagine if you were actually the son of the emperor and now you're living in one of these towns, you'd be pretty confident. It would shape how you lived. It would change how you interacted with people. Right? You would approach life differently in those two different scenarios. At least I assume you would. So that's what John is trying to get us to see here. Don't approach life as if you belong to the world, church. You get that? Don't approach life as if you belong to the world and you're a pauper who's imprisoned. 
No, you're loved by the ruler. And not only that, you've been freed. He tells us you've been freed from our sins by his blood. See yourself for who you really are in him. That's how we receive grace. That's how we receive his peace. If you don't see who you really are, that you are beloved in him, that you are set free from sins, you're going to feel like you have to keep going on sinning. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to get down. You're going to get depressed. Feel like this. There's no hope in fighting sin because I can't conquer it because you don't see that in him you've already conquered because he conquered all your sins. You're going to feel like you're still enslaved. Why? Because you're not realizing you've, you've been set free. This kind of language also, John He's looking back again, and he uses this language of of being freed from our sins by his blood, and that kind of language reminds us of the Passover in Egypt when they were set free, and how, how were they set free? Well, they were set free first as they painted the blood of the lamb on all the doorposts, right? And then the angel of death passed over them, and then after that, they were set free from captivity, because of the blood of the lamb. And so John uses that kind of language, this allusion back to the Old Testament. He's freed us from our sins, from captivity. How? Oh, by his blood. Remembering his love and the freedom we have in him is, is the motivation for us to not become complacent, to not give up, to not lose hope, and to see that he has enabled us in every way to walk in freedom. Not only that, he tells us who we really are. He says, we're a kingdom. That's a, that's a funny way of putting things. We are a kingdom. It's not a building. The, the, this, this building is not the kingdom. This, you know, our, our organization, our network of churches is not the kingdom. It's comprised of the kingdom, but you know who the kingdom is? It says, it says we are a kingdom here. Look, look down your Bibles in verse 6 and said, and he has made us a kingdom. You are a part of God's kingdom. Knowing that you are a part of God's kingdom changes how you relate to the world, doesn't it? Just like knowing that you were son of the emperor would change everything. Well, he gives you better news. You're the son of God through, through Christ who is the king above all kings. That should change how you look at things in this world, whether or not you're afraid of what people think of you, whether or not you give in or become complacent, or how you hang in there in the midst of opposition and persecution. We're a kingdom, and we're priests. We've been brought into a kingdom. He's made us a kingdom, and it's a direct fulfillment of God's promise to Moses. You see, in Exodus, that's what God promised to God's people. That's what he promised. Look, look at Exodus 19.5. It says, I think we have this for in overheads here. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now listen, here's, here's John looking back to the Old Testament again. And you shall be to me a kingdom. And the kingdom of what? He says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. But here is the problem. The people of Israel were not faithful. 
They didn't obey his voice and keep his commandments. And so they could never do that. But the perfect king perfectly kept all of God's commandments. And so Jesus now is the fulfillment. And because of that, he's made us his kingdom, trusting the fact that he has perfectly obeyed God's voice and kept God's covenant. He has made us a kingdom and priests and a holy nation. He's made us his new exodus people now. He's brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. He showed us his goodness and his glory and his rule and his reign. And the word for kingdom in verse 8, it shares that same root word as we saw back in verse 5 where it talks about the kings of the earth. And so there's, John's using a play on words here. You can't quite see it in English here, but he's using a play on words saying, you know, no, these kings, they think they're kings, but no, Jesus is the true king and you're part of the true kingdom. He's the arch ruler over all kings and we, he has made us his kingdom. We're going to see that same idea repeating again in Revelation 5 and verse 9. Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, what? A kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. It might not feel like you're a kingdom, but you are part of God's kingdom. You are God's kingdom. And you might not realize that you are priests, but you are God's priests. And that affects your ability to come to God. Because you're a kingdom, it means something. You're part of the kingdom. You're part of his rule and reign. And so you are meant to actually carry that rule and reign out in how you live. Because you're his kingdom, you're meant to carry out his kingdom in how you live. To show his rule and reign in your life. That should affect you. That's something you can keep in here, right? But not only that, he says you're priests. Now think about the function of a priest. The priests in the Old Testament, they would mediate God to men, and they would take the, the requests of men and make those requests known to God. Now that we're priests, what do we do? We pray for those who are lost, right? And then we also mediate God's word to a lost and dying world around us. That should affect how you live. That's something to keep. That's something to hear. You're a kingdom. Manifest that in how you live. You're his priests. Manifest that in how you live. And he was the ultimate witness. So because of that, we know that we can be his priestly witnesses, both praying for and communicating his word. Think about the fact that you're part of his kingdom. Are you, are you living like you belong to his kingdom? Does your life attest to the dominion belonging to Jesus? Do you live like he's your Lord? Is he, is he Lord over how you watch things, over what you watch? Is he Lord over, is, he, is his kingdom seen in what you're looking at? Is his kingdom seen in, in how you use your computer and, and what you're writing and what you're reading? Is his kingdom rule and reign seen in your interactions with your neighbors? Is his kingdom rule and reign seen in how you do your work? This isn't meant to condemn you, but it's, it's meant to be kept and to heard. Heard and kept, I mean. Are, are you functioning as his priest? As a priest, not only does that mean you have access to God, but it also means that you have a responsibility to mediate God's word to people who have, do not have it, who are not God's people. Those who are not priests, those who are not God's people, you're meant to communicate God's word. Do you communicate God's word to unbelievers? How do you do that? And not only that, do you know that as a priest, you have access 
to God that's very special. That's why we can come before the throne of grace, receive mercy and grace. Only priests could do that. You can always receive his grace if you get this, that you're a priest before God and that you can come boldly before the throne. Why? Because you've been sprinkled with the blood of the lamb. You've been made clean. And so now you can come into the holy of holies, to the the sacred place where God's presence is and receive mercy, receive grace. And he can receive peace because you know that you have peace with God. You are his priests. Because of all of that, it's meant to result in, in praise and worship. To him be the glory and dominion, the reign forever and ever. That's, that's our hope, our confidence. Now lastly, not only we receive grace and peace from seeing who God is, who we are in him, we receive grace and peace from looking for Christ's return. We receive grace and peace for looking for Christ, from looking for Christ's return. What are you looking for in this life? I want you to think about that. You know, what am I looking for in this life? Am I looking, and what am I striving for? What's, what's the ultimate goal of this life? Is it to have um, my house paid off? No debt? Is it so I can retire maybe and go and live in U.S. Virgin Islands or wherever you see as paradise Maybe that's just my idea of a great place to live. You know, what, what are you looking for? Here's what should shape all of our life. And this is really what, what John's trying to get us to see, what God's trying to get us to see through Revelation is anticipating that he is coming, that he's going to return. That's our longing. That's our deepest longing is meant to be for his return. Not, not that everything's going to work out in this life and it'll be a perfect utopia, but that he'll return and we'll be found in him. Not having a righteousness that's our own, but, but having the righteousness that is Christ's, that's perfect. He says Jesus is coming with the clouds. And everybody's going to see Jesus for who he really is. He's coming to judge as well. John knows the Old Testament well. When he announces the truth about Jesus, he says, behold. He says, Behold. The message of the king who was and is and who will to come is it's, it's summed up really in, in all of Revelation. It's, it's this message, behold the king. You see, behold Jesus. He is triumphant. He is conquered. He is currently reigning. And get this, he's coming back. He's returning. That's what we're looking for in this life. That's what we're hanging on to in this life. That's what those Christians in that day needed most. Because you know what? There was no guarantee. There, this, was, this is not written to middle class people. The Christians, by and large, in those cities it was written to, they were, by and large, not doing that well. They, they, were, they were outcasts generally. They were, they were seen as kind of outsiders of society. A lot of them probably struggled financially. And what they needed to see was that their hope was not that they would prosper under this Roman system. Their hope was not that life would all work out well here. Their, their hope is not that they wouldn't experience opposition or persecution. Their hope was who God was and is and, and who they are in him and that Jesus is coming back and he's going to wipe out all these kingdoms. He's, he's, he's already established his kingdoms, but one day he's going to make his kingdom prevail We see here John's also revealing that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy in Daniel. 
And by the way, as you're reading through Revelation, Daniel 7 and other passages in Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah are very important, but Daniel 7 is referenced a lot, even if not directly. You don't have your footnotes, but Daniel 7, verse 13, this seems to be John looking back. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one. So with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Isn't that good news? Which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's, that's what John's looking. He's looking at and he's seeing this this fulfillment of. He's seeing that now Jesus is the one. His, his kingdom has come. And that's why we pray, Lord, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth like it already is in heaven. His kingdom already is established in heaven, so we pray that his kingdom would actively come and that, that ultimately he would return and establish his kingdom forever. It, it doesn't matter what you believe about the the various views about the end times, okay? About when he's coming back and exactly what that's going to look like. I want you to set those things aside as you're, as you're going through the book of Revelation. A lot of us have different perspectives, and that's okay. We can have different perspectives, come to the book, and all get the same stuff out of it, okay? If, if you're not getting distracted by all the details. And I know that, like me, I got a lot of past baggage in a lot of different areas. And so the details and those things in my head, I'm like, well, why isn't he saying this? Why isn't he touching on that? Why didn't he touch on this? Why didn't he say that? Well, I think this. Put those things aside. Just listen to what God has to say to us. See, God's, God's wanting to, to share his grace and peace with us. That's what, that's what verses 4 to 8 are about. He wants to give his grace and peace to us. He won't leave us alone. Whether or not we die and, and go to be with him, Jesus is coming back. And everyone will see him. You know what? The people in that day, they needed to know that all these unbelievers who were persecuting them would really get it. That one day, the truth would be revealed. That one day it would be clear who Jesus really is. And he says, every eye will see him. What does that mean? Every eye will see him for who he really is. I don't know how that's going to happen, or what's going to look like, but somehow when Jesus returns, and this is talking about the second coming, when Jesus returns to take his bride home, when he returns, all the earth will see him for who he really is, and Christians and Jesus, his name will be vindicated. You don't have to worry about what people think about you. You know why? Because he's going to take care of that. He's going to vindicate himself. It's comfort for those suffering. It's not going to last forever. He'll one day make an end to all suffering. It's a warning as well to those who are disobedient and indifferent. If you're disobedient, if you're indifferent, he's coming back. Don't be one of those who will wail and weep. He's coming to judge the churches, the next chapter of Revelation. He's ultimately coming in his return at the end, and everybody on earth will see him, even those who don't believe in him, even those who pierced him, it says, who crucified him. They'll understand the error of their ways. Don't worry about what anybody here thinks about you. All the tribes that belong to the earth, that don't belong to him, will wail when he's revealed. It's, it's Jesus here who was pierced that Zechariah prophesied about. I love I love how Revelation just makes sense of the whole Bible. 
In Zechariah 12, verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. That's the same picture John's giving us of his coming. When he comes, people will wail over their sins. He says, even so, Everyone who rejected Jesus will acknowledge who he is. He'll right all wrongs. Are there wrong things in your life today? There are people who you wish would see clearly. Don't worry about it. God knows timing. He's going to come back. He's going to make all people see. We can be sure God staked his name on it. He kind of stamps it at the very end. He says, hey, by the way, this is not John speaking. This is me. He says, I am, and he stamps it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. You can be sure because of who I am. I'm the Almighty. I direct all of history is what God's saying. Even the great dragon in the book of Revelation, the, the beast, his false prophet, the, the unholy trinity that is a defilement of the true trinity of God. God says, I'm Almighty over all that. I'm, I'm the one who is and was. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I've got the final say. And if you get that, if you understand who God is, who you are in Christ, and that Jesus is coming back and he has the final say, that's going to dramatically change how you live. It's going to, you're going to receive God's grace, and you're going to walk in his peace. Peace through the Spirit, peace through Jesus, being able to trust in God, to be faithful witnesses, to receive grace as, as priests, to have peace knowing he's over all things and he's coming back. Amen? Well, I don't know another appropriate way to end than to, to end by worshiping God. So the band, go ahead and come up, and then we'll sing a worship song. And as they're coming up, I'm going to just pray.